in 2020, more than 100,000 women of color went missing. At least four black women and girls were murdered per day in the United States. Most of those cases are still unsolved. These are their stories. Hi listeners, I'm your host, LB. Think back to nine-year-old you. Now, just humor me for a moment. What were you doing? Let me guess. You were riding your bike around the neighborhood with your friends until the streetlight came on. Perhaps you were playing hide-and-go-seek. Maybe you were building some kind of impenetrable fort made solely out of bed sheets and a box fan. If you were born in this decade, then you were probably selecting the Yes, I Am 18 box so that you could create a MySpace page, you millennials, you. Either way, those were happy times, right? Fun and carefree times. Now stay with me because you're still nine years old. Did you ever pack a bag of clothes, open the door to your house, and walk out into a rainstorm in the middle of the night? Well, it's been 23 years since a nine-year-old little girl dubbed as Shelby's sweetheart voluntarily packed a bag and left her North Carolina home early one morning to never be seen or heard from again. Take this journey with me as I tell you the story of Asia Degree. Before we jump right in and try to find the answer to the question, what happened to Asia? I first want us to get to know Asia. And to do that, we need to start at the beginning to fully understand Asia's life right up to the moment that she went missing. Harold and Aquila were married on February 14th, 1988. A year later, they welcomed their first child, a son they named O'Brien. And a year later, in 1990, their daughter Asia was born. The Degrees raised their two children in a subdivision just north of Shelby, North Carolina. Now, Shelby is a small town that sits on the western edge of Charlotte, and Charlotte is the largest metropolitan area in the Carolinas. But for all the things that a large city like Charlotte has to offer, the Degrees lived a simple life. And if you ask anyone that knows them, they are your typical family. Both parents worked. Harold worked the second shift as a dock loader at PPG Industries in Shelby, while Aquila worked at Kauai Piano Factory in nearby Lincolnton. On school days, Aquila would wake Asia and O'Brien up at 6.30 a.m. before leaving for work, and the two were expected to get dressed, eat breakfast, and catch the school bus to Faustin Elementary School on their own. They were latchkey kids, so the degree children would let themselves into the house after school and start on their homework. They were allowed to play outside as long as they finished their homework, 
But oftentimes, by the time their parents came home from work, they were either still working or just finishing up their schoolwork. Bedtime was 9 p.m. on weekdays and 10 p.m. on weekends. And that was their life. The degrees sheltered their children. There was no computer in their home because Aquila felt that the internet was a dangerous place. So their life was centered around church, school, and their extended family, which included Harold's mother and sister who lived right across the street. Now, to some people, when they hear the way the degrees raise their children, they think of words like isolated and secluded, but not Asia. She was actually quite content with the guidelines set by her parents because Asia is described by everyone who knew her as shy and cautious. But the one thing that brought Asia out of her comfort zone was her love for sports. In particular, basketball and baseball. Actually, it's her love for basketball and the events that take place during that weekend that change the Degree family forever. So let's break down this timeline, shall we? Friday, February 11th, 2000. There was no school that day which meant a three-day weekend for O'Brien and Asia. But because adulting is a thing, Harold and Aquila still had to go to work. So the children spent the day at their Aunt Keisha's house. Both O'Brien and Asia played basketball for their elementary school. And since they both had a game the next day, they had one final practice. So they left from their Aunt Keisha's house on Friday afternoon and they head to practice. Asia's coach, Coach Chad Wilson, said that the practice was normal, that Asia was her usual fun-filled self, and that she had a good practice. Saturday, February 12th is game day, and the girls' basketball team was up first. And as shy as Asia could be, she is the star point guard on her team and she would shine bright when she stepped onto the court but not this time because unfortunately Asia fouled out and her team lost their very first game of the season not only was it the first loss of the season but they lost by a single point this was devastating to Asia she was upset. I mean, she even cried with her teammates after the game because she felt personally responsible for this loss. But as upset as Aisha was, she couldn't just leave. I mean, O'Brien still had to play his game. And so for a while, Aisha is kind of quiet. And at one point, she even tells her mom that her leg hurts. Now, during my research, I couldn't find any relevance to Asia complaining about her leg. So my thought is that this was her nine-year-old way of saying, I'm ready to go. 
I don't want to be here anymore. And I think her mom, Aquila, has the same thought because she tells her, no, you're fine, shake it off. And so she does. Minutes later, she was up smiling and joking. Even Coach Wilson agrees that she was fine because he remembers sitting behind her on the bleachers and as her brother played his game, he recalls playfully throwing a towel over her head just to get her to smile and it worked. Aisha was back to her old self and even cheered her brother on during the rest of his game. After the game Saturday night, Aisha goes to a slumber party at her 15-year-old cousin Katina's house. And the kids stay up late watching Soul Train and Showtime at the Apollo. Sunday comes, and it's like any other Sunday for the degrees. Harold, Aquila, and O'Brien, they pick Aisha up from the slumber party, and they go to church at Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church in Waco. After church... The family gathered at the home of a family member where they had lunch. And while there, the kids received Valentine's Day gifts from the family. Everyone recalls Aisha being happy and having a really good time as she received perfume and candy from her grandmother. The degrees head home where Aisha fell asleep on the couch around 6.30 p.m. and. It's worth mentioning that if Aisha was ever sad, she became withdrawn and took frequent naps. But Aquila chalked this specific nap up to nothing more than Aisha still being tired from not getting enough sleep the night before. Two hours later, Aisha is awakened by a thunderstorm. So she stays in the living room watching TV with the rest of her family. A few minutes after 9 p.m., Aquila starts drawing a bath for the kids when all of a sudden, the power goes out. This was because a few miles away, a motorist crashed into a utility pole, knocking out power to all of Northern Cleveland County. So with the power out, Aquila sends the children straight to bed. At 11.30, Harold stepped out for a last minute trip to buy Valentine's Day candy. Tomorrow would be his and Aquila's anniversary and the couple planned to spend the day alone at home. He wasn't gone long and when he came home, he fell asleep on the couch. Around 12.30 a.m., the power finally comes back on and Aquila wakes up Harold to ask him to move the kerosene lamp that had been used during the outage. And then Aquila heads back to bed. After granting his wife's request, Harold is now wide awake. So he settles in on the couch and watches TV. At 2.30 a.m., he checked on Aisha and O'Brien in the bedroom that they share and found them sleeping peacefully in their beds. And so, Harold turns in for the night. Shortly after this check-in, O'Brien stirs because he hears Aisha's bed squeaking. Now, he assumed she was just tossing and turning in her sleep. 
O'Brien then hears Aisha go to the bathroom, but reports differ on whether he ever hears her return before he drifts back to sleep. Monday, February 14th, Aquila woke up at 5.15 to get the kids ready for school. And it's a big day for the Degree family because it's not only Valentine's Day, but it's the Degree's 12 year anniversary. Aquila starts drawing a bath for the kids and just before their 6.30 a.m. alarm is set to go off, she walks into their room and there is O'Brien asleep in his bed, but Aisha's bed is empty. Aisha and O'Brien were only a year apart and they were extremely close. Sometimes when Aisha couldn't sleep, she would lay on the floor near O'Brien's bed. And so Aquila peers over O'Brien's bed to see if Aisha was asleep, but there was no sign of Aisha. Aquila starts checking all of the rooms in the house. I mean, she is looking everywhere. She even goes outside to check their cars to see if for some reason she would be in one of them, but there was no sign of Aisha. At this point, I'm sure Aquila's heart rate has increased. It's not full on panic, but I mean, she has checked the entire house. So where could she be? She runs to find Harold and Harold, ever the calm one, says, listen, she probably went over to my mother's house. And for a second, relief washes over Aquila as she dials the number to her in-laws across the street. But when her sister-in-law answers and says, no, Aisha isn't here, that is when panic sets in. By 6.40 a.m., the neighborhood was buzzing with activity because the first officers were already on the scene. There are now several news crews reporting live. And listen, if there were neighbors that were still asleep in the Oak Crest neighborhood by 7 a.m., trust me, they were wide awake because like any mom, Aquila went into full mama bear mode. She is walking up and down the entire neighborhood, calling Aisha's name. And the result of this is overwhelming. Everyone, and I mean everyone, friends, family, neighbors, they all start canceling their plans or calling out of work to assist in the search for Aisha. I mean, even the pastor from their church, along with some of the clergy, come out to support the degrees. Officers bring out the police dogs, but unfortunately, they were unable to pick up her scent because of the rainstorm that night before. And by the end of that first day, all that was found was a glove, which Aquila verified did not belong to Asia. So how did we get here? What we do know is that in the short time from when her dad checked on her at 2.30 and her mom came to wake her up at 
Aisha grabbed her black and beige backpack and began packing some of her favorite clothes. She slipped a long sleeved white shirt over her head and put on acid wash jeans. She laced up her white sneakers, grabbed her Tweety Bird purse, and she left her home walking along Highway 18 through heavy rain and wind. Oh yeah, you heard that right. In the early morning hours, nine-year-old Aisha, who, by the way, is afraid of dogs and storms, left the comfort of her home without a jacket and walked out into a cold and wet winter night. Now at this point, if you're like me, you are screaming at the top of your lungs that somebody had to see a little girl walking in the rain in the middle of the night. And you're right. Someone, in fact, two eyewitnesses come forward. On Monday afternoon, a 25-year-old trucker named Jeff who worked for Sun Drop Bottling Company, was eating lunch when he saw Aisha's face on TV. He instantly recognized her as the child he had seen walking in the rain along Highway 18 at 3.30 that morning, about a mile south of Aisha's home. Jeff said, quote, I seen a little girl walking down the road with her book bag. She had on a little dress and white tennis shoes, and her hair was in pigtails. I went back, but she never did look up at me. She looked like she knew where she was going. She was walking at a pretty good pace." End quote. Jeff recalls circling three times, and when he realized that she was a child, he turned his truck around, and as he approached her, she abruptly left the highway and ran into the woods. At 4.15 a.m., a former deputy with the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office named Roy was heading northbound on Highway 18 with his son when they saw a small person walking down the road. Quote, it was a small figure wearing light colored clothing. I thought it was a woman. I couldn't tell it was a child. I thought that maybe it was a domestic violence thing where a woman left the house and was out walking." End quote. Roy also placed the sighting approximately one mile from Aisha's home just before the intersection of highways 18 and 180. Roy and his son were concerned that she would get run over so they sent a message over the CB radio for other truckers to be on the lookout. But Roy didn't stop along the highway to check on the child. Instead, he made a stop in Falston, and that's where he learned about Aisha's disappearance during a phone call with his wife. The next day, the men returned to Shelby and went straight to the command post to report the sighting in person. The accounts reported by both truckers would be the last reported sighting of Asia for more than two decades.
And look, the moms who are listening right now are probably going crazy because your first instinct would have been to stop and check on this child who is out in the rain in the middle of the night. Maybe you feel like Jeff and Roy could and should have done more. And trust me, I get it. But let's admit a harsh reality. And that is that no good deed goes unpunished. Maybe stopping to help could have gotten them into a lot of trouble with authorities just based on perception alone. But don't get me started on the type of world we live in where we actually have to think before helping another human being out. But I digress. The next day is Tuesday, February 15th, and a group of volunteers approached the property of the Turners. You see, the Turners lived about a mile south of the degree home, which was also the direction that Asia was walking. The volunteers asked Riley and her daughter Debbie to check their property for any sign of Asia, and the Turners obliged. They start checking their property when they come to an old shed where they store supplies for their upholstery business. And what they find when they walk into that shed, I promise you, will stick with you long after this episode ends. As they approach the shed, which, by the way, is approximately 300 feet from the main road, they find a green marker in the entryway. And as they step inside the shed, they find a 1996 Atlanta Olympics pencil, candy wrappers, a Mickey Mouse shaped hair bow, and a photo of a young black girl. But if you're holding your breath, hoping that I tell you it's a picture of Asia, although the little girl in the photo is the same age as Asia, it's not her. What's odd is that no one can ID this little girl. To this day, no one has come forward to identify her. That is, until the world met us, right? Take a look at her picture on thecostofcolor.com and don't assume that because this took place in North Carolina, that there is no way you could possibly have information about this case. Because as it stands today, no one in North Carolina has come forward about this little girl. On February 16th, Jeff, the driver who had the first sighting of Asia, he is questioned and polygraphed by authorities. And then he takes the FBI back to the spot where he saw Asia dart into the woods. And that spot is less than 600 feet from the Turner's field. The FBI speak with Riley and Debbie and they hand over the photograph of the unknown little girl, but that's it. They keep the other items on their porch in a neat pile stating that they, the Turners, 
lived too far away for any of the items to belong to Asia. Now, I'm not sure why authorities did not insist that the Turners hand over all of the items. I mean, isn't that the whole point of evidence? Isn't it evidence until proven otherwise? Well, the volunteers must have this same thought because they show up again on the Turner's doorstep and start asking about the candy wrappers and other items found on their property. And this time, the Turners hand over everything that was found in the shed. The degrees were able to identify that with the exception of the photo, everything belonged to Asia. The candy wrappers were from a treat bag that Asia and her basketball team were given at Saturday's game. And even that 1996 Atlanta Olympics pencil was Asia's. The degrees have family in Atlanta, which is only about three hours from Shelby, and they attended a reunion there the previous summer. During the search for Asia, authorities posted flyers. They conducted a search that spanned a two to three mile radius of where she had last been seen. The police received over 300 tips that range from sightings to possible abandoned homes or wells where she was reportedly located. But after a week and 9,000 man hours, the search for Asia was officially called off. And it would be a year and a half before the degrees see a spark in their daughter's case. On August 2nd, 2001, 26 miles north of Asia's home, a contractor named Terry Fleming was etching a driveway into a hillside along Highway 18, and Terry uncovers something bulky wrapped in a black plastic bag. And what's inside causes so many people to lose all hope. From the moment he saw the bag, Terry had an odd feeling, but he didn't open the bag. He simply kept working. But his mind kept drifting back to that bag, and eventually curiosity got the best of him. So he tries to rip the bag open, but this bag was sealed pretty good. He even tried to tear it open using his tractor. But when that didn't work, he threw it over his head, and when it hit the ground, the bag broke open. Inside, he found a beige and black book bag containing Aisha's name and phone number. The name did not register to Terry, but this discovery still made him uneasy. Quote, strange enough that I didn't feel comfortable with it. End quote. He tried to call someone about it right then and there, but was unable to get cell service in the area. So he jotted down the number from the backpack and decided he would call the number later. There's no mention if Terry ever attempts to call the number, but the next morning 
he mentioned the discovery to his wife, who immediately recognized the name and told him to call the police. Sheriff Crawford with the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office said that the book bag was double wrapped in a black trash bag and appeared to have been buried at that location for quite some time. And listen, law enforcement was tight-lipped about the contents found inside her bag. What they do acknowledge is that finding the backpack prompted a 300-mile search of the area and buried near Aisha's backpack were a pair of men's khaki pants. Now, in none of my source material do I find out anything else about the khaki pants, but I do know that the backpack was sent to Quantico for testing, so I can only hope that the pants were sent there as well. If you were expecting results in 15 minutes like you see on your favorite crime show, then you are in for a huge letdown. Remember, Aisha's backpack was found in August 2001. And guess what happened just a few short weeks later? Yep, the World Trade Center was attacked on 9-11-2001 and the FBI lab in Quantico was inundated with requests. And as you can imagine, this created a massive backlog impacting any testing that would be done on Asia's backpack. Two years later in 2003, the Star reported that the lab results had come back, but they were not being released to the public. In that same article, Captain David Rankin was asked about releasing the details, but stated, quote, there is a need to maintain the integrity of the case, end quote. It's not until 2015 when the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office teams up with the FBI and the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations, and together they re-examine the case and finally reveal details related to her backpack. Inside the bag are Aisha's favorite pair of jeans, jeans with a red stripe down the side, a long-sleeved white nylon shirt, a red vest with black trim, black overalls with Tweety Bird on them, a black and white long-sleeved shirt, a lime green Tweety Bird purse, black shoes, her wallet, her basketball uniform, three family photos, and her house key. And it's no surprise that the items found in the backpack were Aisha's. I mean, it's her backpack. But what you don't expect to find are items that don't belong to Aisha inside of that backpack. For instance, there was a New Kids on the Block t-shirt in the bag that did not belong to Aisha. And while a book called McGilligan's Pool by Dr. Seuss was from Aisha's school library, there is no way to confirm if she was the one to check the book out since by the time the backpack was found, 
library records were no longer available that far back. Over the next few years, nothing significant happens in the case. I mean, sure, there are tips that come in, but eventually, they're all debunked, except one. In May 2016, the FBI announced that they were looking for a dark green, early 1970s Ford Thunderbird or Lincoln Mark IV with rust around the wheel wells. Cleveland County Sheriff Alan Norman stated that the vehicle was occupied two times, which basically means that two people were already inside when Asia entered the vehicle. This lead is pretty significant, and while police are not sure why this person waited so long to give them this information, they believe this tip is trustworthy. I interpret that to mean this is someone who is close to this case. Close enough to have details about Asia in her final hours before her disappearance. The police would like to speak to anyone who may know someone who owned one of those vehicles when Asia went missing. To say that this case has baffled law enforcement is an understatement. I mean, you just don't hear of nine-year-old runaways. The American Academy of Pediatrics conducted a survey the year prior to Asia's disappearance. And the average age of a runaway was 15 to 17 years old. On top of that, there were no red flags that point to Asia running away because of a dysfunctional family or even from poor performance in school. In fact, everyone who talks about Harold and Aquila describe how devoted they are to their children, showing up for every game, not to mention Asia was a great student in school and extremely smart. There are so many theories about what happened to Asia. Some people believe that Asia was sleepwalking that night. But of all the theories, this seems the least likely to me. There are no reports of Asia having a history of sleepwalking. Some think that somehow this plan was set into motion during the slumber party and that someone was grooming her and convinced her to leave home. This is possible, but the only way to know for sure is if people that were in that house that night come forward and start talking. Some people believe that the unidentified little girl in the photo was used as a ruse to lure her out of the house. Maybe she thought she was going to meet this little girl in the picture and somehow someone else showed up instead. The police dogs never pick up Aisha's scent in the shed and it has led some to believe that she was never actually in the shed at all and that the items were actually planted there. Something that further supports that theory 
is that a neighbor of the Turners, he keeps his six beagles in a dog lot behind the shed. And they would bark if anyone so much as came near that spot. But that night, the neighbor says he didn't hear a peep out of his dogs. Police wonder if Aisha truly was upset about losing the game on that Saturday and perhaps blamed herself for the loss and that drove her to leave home. I'm not 100% sold on this theory, but I also have to remember that we're talking about a nine-year-old child and to her, losing that game could have felt like the end of the world. So what do Harold and Aquila think? Well, for starters, they seem to agree with the police that Asia was so upset about the game, but they add a twist to that theory. You see, they wonder if a book could have influenced Asia to leave. A week before she disappeared, Aisha's class read a book called The Whipping Boy. The story is about a young boy whose sole purpose is to take punishments, aka whippings, for a young prince. And the two of them, they hatch up a plan to run away from the kingdom in the middle of the night. They go on a wild adventure that includes escaping from thieves and meeting new friends along the way, all before returning to the kingdom safe and unharmed at the end of the book. Is it possible that Aisha blamed herself for losing the game and in her mind, running away while sad to leave her family behind was also some type of an adventure? No one asked for my opinion, but I'm going to give it anyway. The shed and the items discovered in the shed bother me. They bother me a lot. Walk down Crazy Lane with me for a moment as I turn onto Conspiracy Boulevard. To me, this photo is key. When we find out who the little girl in the photo is, we can confirm that yes, she is an adult now, but more importantly, she is safe and sound. I find it hard to believe that after police make this picture public, that no one in the surrounding area has recognized her in all of these years. And I think it's because she is also missing and anyone that could ID her has passed away or moved out of the area. But I don't believe that Aisha had that photo with her. I think it was already in the shed. Do with that information what you will, but I said what I said and I stand by it. And I think that when we find Asia, we'll be shocked to learn how close she has been to her family all along. Now, whatever you're doing right now, I want you to stop and really focus on what I'm about to say. 
Because this last theory is the most commonly agreed upon theory. And that is that this started as a case of a runaway that turned into an abduction. By now, you've already counted in your head how old Aisha would be today and that she should be old enough to just walk away from her captor. Yeah, I was naive about this misconception too. You see, in my research, I've learned that abductees over time, they accept that they are living the only life that they know. Abductees do not always look disheveled or wide-eyed or even skittish. Someone who is abducted eventually smiles and laughs again. They can even have jobs and families of their own. So to answer your question, three days before this podcast was published, Aisha turned 33 years old and could very well have children of her own. Visit our website, thecostofcolor.com, to view age progression photos of Asia over the years. And ask yourself, does nine-year-old Asia look like the shy, quiet little girl that used to play with your daughter? How about 19-year-old Asia? Doesn't she favor the young lady who used to bag your groceries at the store? What about 29-year-old Asia? Doesn't she resemble the woman in the park watching her kids play? Listen to Aquila in her own words as she talks about Asia's disappearance after all of these years. We don't know if Cleveland County or the FBI, if they believe they're looking for remains, we believe our daughter's still alive. So we're expecting a person. I've told them for 21 years, until you bring me 99.9% proof that something remains as hers, I'm not going to believe it. Our faith is the main reason why we haven't went crazy, that we are able to still work, that we are able to do every interview every year, and that the only reason why we've actually even getting through this. No matter why she left home, the Degrees believe that Aisha is still alive. And if the Degrees believe that Aisha is still alive, then we need to believe that Aisha is alive too. Every year, the family holds a commemorative one mile walk from their home to the billboard on Highway 18, marking the spot where Jeff saw Aisha run into the woods. They refuse to believe she's dead and remain optimistic that she will return. All right, tribe, it's your turn. Start talking about Aisha to everyone that you know. If you're someone that knows something, say something. To contact the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office with information on this case, please call 704-484-4822. You can also contact the FBI at 704-672-6100. We haven't gave up. 
and that if anything, I don't care how small, how minute, if you think it doesn't matter, pick up the phone and just call them. Let them do their job. No matter how this end up, if it doesn't end up the way we think or believe, at least we'll have the closure and the satisfaction of knowing as her parents, we've done everything in our power to help bring our child, to help find our child and to bring her home. For more information about this case, visit us at thecostofcolor.com. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have information about this case and you are uncomfortable talking to the authorities, then talk to me. You don't know me, but my word is my bond and you will remain anonymous. You have my word that by contacting me, you have a safe and judge-free zone to tell me what you know. Email me at coldcases at thecostofcolor.com. The Cost of Color is a 1602 production.